Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, I am really echoey. It's the voice of God coming to you today. Um, I wish I had that kind of authority. Uh, you guys are glad I don't, though. Uh, so if you are a first-time guest, uh, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor here for Riverwood. And uh, i just uh, curious, how many of you spend time thinking about rock puns? Okay, some of you. Most of you don't, though. All right, that means you take them for granted. All right, that, yeah, that one was pretty lame. Uh, actually, I, I thought that one was uh, pretty solid. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, they're getting worse, aren't they? Have, have I hit rock bottom yet? Thank you, thank you. I'm glad someone thinks that. Uh, okay, so my lame jokes may or may not be funny, um, but have you ever hit rock bottom emotionally in life? If you have... You know how badly it hurts. Like, maybe rock bottom happened because you lost a job. Or maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you hit your rock bottom when a friend betrayed you. Or maybe it's when you kind of betrayed your own values. Maybe you hit rock bottom when you realized the addiction was out of control. Or, or maybe it's when a crisis came on. Health crisis could have been physical, could have been mental, financial crisis, a relational crisis. Or most likely, you hit rock bottom because it was a combination of all of those things. If, if you've been there, you know how badly it hurts. I've, I've shared before a couple of the rock bottoms that I felt like I hit. One of them was in year one of planting Riverwood. We launched Easter Sunday, 2014. We poured everything into this. And after a launch of like, I think we had like 90 people, within just a few weeks, we were down to about 30. And it just stayed there. And after a time, it felt like about every month, someone else of those 30 was, was coming and saying, hey, Aaron, uh, we're not going to be a part of this anymore. And I was just starting to spiral down. In depression. And, and when I would I start to share with another pastor, they would just basically say to me, Aaron, you, you need to shut the doors. And I hit the bottom. Now, your, your struggle probably wasn't through planting a church, but if you've been there, you know exactly what I was feeling. You felt incredibly vulnerable. You were so raw, you felt so broken. You, you maybe felt a little bit of anger, but more likely, you were embarrassed. Maybe even confused. Like, how did I end up here? In my case, it was like, God, I've done everything you've wanted me to. Why aren't you blessing me? And when you just go falling down that deep emotional well, and you hit that bottom, you think this is it. This is the end. Now, I'm able to look back and realize, oh, things could have been way worse, way worse. But in the midst of it, all I could see was the darkness. All I could feel was the pain. We started the book of Ruth last week, and we got to meet two main characters. And as we tr transgressed, I mean, progressed through chapter one, we saw them get to rock bottom. The first main character we met was Naomi. 
We watched Naomi move with her family from her hometown of Bethlehem to the neighboring nation of Moab. Moab were a bunch of bullies at that time. And now she's living as a foreigner among them. But the reason they moved was because there was a famine. And so her husband, in trying to protect their lives, moves to where he hears there's food. Only her husband dies. And she's left a widow. Ten years later, her two sons have grown up. They're adults. They've taken on their own wives. And then they, too, pass away, leaving her with these two daughters-in-law. And now, here she is, a widow in this patriarchal culture where she's now vulnerable, a foreigner. She's at rock bottom. Then we met Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who married one of Ruth's sons. And like Ruth, she becomes a widow. However, unlike Ruth, she had no children. And that was actually a bad thing for her because there was no one there in a sense to distract her from her pain, no one for her to kind of pour out love to, no one to grow up to provide for her. She was truly alone. She was at rock bottom. And yet today, as we move into chapter two, we're going to see the story make a turn. We're going to see God step into their deep emotional well and to shine a little bit of light, and to begin to lift them up, and we're going to see hope spring anew. And my hope is that if you are currently at rock bottom, or if you currently feel like you're plunging that direction, that somehow Ruth 2 will be a sliver of light into your darkness, and you'll start to remember and realize God is aware, he is with you, and he is working, and he can lift you out of this. But also, if you're doing great right now, what I hope you'll do is you'll take the sermon, you'll fold it up, and you'll stick it in your back pocket. Because right now, while you see the light of day, you can look at the well, and you can look down, and you think everything's great. One day, you might find yourself starting to fall in. And you're going to need to reach into the back pocket and pull this out and be reminded that even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your struggle, God is still there. Your pain is not evidence and proof of the absence of God or the absence of his love. Instead, your rock bottom might just end up becoming the fertile ground for which God grows something great. And you're going to need to hold on to that. And I hope that these truths that you hear today will help carry you through that. So as we get ready to dive into Ruth 2, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, as we uh, get ready to turn to your scriptures I pray that you would speak to all of us. Lord, we are all over the place in our emotional journey, in our spiritual journey. Uh, we are different ages. We are different backgrounds. That, that on the surface, we might look quite a bit alike, and yet our stories are so different. So Lord, I do not even want to pretend that in any way I can say exactly what each person needs. So God, that's why I ask that you would do what only you can do that you would take these timeless truths out of the book of Ruth and you would bring them to the hearts and minds of each person that is listening to this, whether in person or online or the podcast later in the week, and you would be speaking to them. Lord, I'm going to trust that you have intentionally brought them to this moment to listen to this because you have something for them. So God, I pray that you would help this move beyond just me, my preparation, preparation any sort of performance that really when we, this all gets done, we have had a sense that we've met with you. 
Because God, I truly believe that you love us, you are for us, and you know us. And your, your love for us is not based upon our circumstances. It's based upon what you have done for us through Jesus on the cross and what you've done in creating us and putting your image in us. So help us to hear what we need to hear today. I pray you do this for your glory and for our joy. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, if you uh, brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is this tiny little book in the Old Testament, only four chapters long. So if you're not sure exactly where it is, feel free to kind of use the cheat sheet there on the screen. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we're going to be putting the scripture on the screen. We want you to be able to to see it and read it and learn with us. But if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. Uh, If you want to go old school like me, because you realize you're on your phone way too much, uh, go grab a paper Bible off of our resource table. We've got two translations back there. We'll find the one that will fit you best, because we just really believe that your learning will be enhanced when you're not just relying on a screen, but you're actually to have the Bible that's in your own hands. So please get your own Bible and feel free to use that any and every Sunday, as well as any and every day of the week. Last week, as I said, we met Naomi and Ruth, and we saw the the difficulty that they went through. We saw Naomi have to to leave home in Bethlehem and go and live among the Moabites. We saw her lose her husband, Elimelech. We then saw her, you know, even though it was a sentence later, it was a decade later for her, she loses her two sons. And so she's left with these two daughter-in-laws. Well, these two daughter-in-laws are both Moabites. They're still young enough. They have no children And so she realizes, I'm a foreigner, I'm a widow, I'm vulnerable. The safest thing for me to do would be to go back home to Bethlehem. So she tells her two daughter-in-laws, hey, return back to your families. Maybe your fathers will take you back and your fathers will help you find another husband and you can then still have children and have a happy life. But if you're stuck with me, you're not going to enjoy your life. In fact, we learned last week that Naomi's name in Hebrew means pleasant And yet she did not feel like her life at all was pleasant. In fact, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she tells people who recognize her, hey, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because that's how she felt. And she felt that's how God had been treating her. She was at rock bottom. Then we also, uh, as I said, met Ruth. Ruth, though, did not do what her kind of sister-in-law, Orpah, did. Orpah heard Naomi's words go back home, and Orpah's like, Okay, that sounds wise. So she takes off and heads back to her father's home. Ruth, though, looks at Naomi and says these amazing, powerful, beautiful words that we read last week. If your Bible's open there in Ruth, look in chapter 1 and go to verses 16 and 17. These are what we heard Ruth say last week to Naomi. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And with those words, Ruth basically bonded herself to Naomi. Not in any sort of romantic, marital type of way. Just in a deep friendship relationship. Because Ruth realizes Naomi has no one to care for her. And so she's trying to step in and fill this gap even at great cost to herself. So these two decide to bond together and head back to Bethlehem. Now, 
Last week, we did not, even though we were studying chapter one, we did not read all of chapter one. Today, even though we're studying chapter two, we're not going to read all of chapter two. But last week, we didn't read all the way to the end. And at the very end, there's this transitionary phrase, uh, phrase, I guess you could say, uh, transitionary verse. It's the very last one, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That last phrase, at the beginning of barley harvest, is very, very important. First, if you're like me, you're going, what is barley? Right? Maybe you're you, you know, better knowing farming than, than me, but uh, barley turns out currently worldwide is the fourth most produced crop in the world. It tends to be a little more popular elsewhere around the world where it's used for breads, cereals. I found out it's uh, used in a lot of stews, soups. Here in America, the barley that is grown is primarily used for beer. So I guess it's fermented barley juice. Uh, if you like beer, that's what you're drinking. Um, 40% of barley is produced in Idaho, uh, followed by Montana and uh, North Dakota, because it turns out barley really likes temperate climates, which is exactly what Israel is in the spring. Barley, would, the harvest would happen somewhere around what we would call May. Interestingly enough, wheat harvest would happen immediately after. Wheat and barley, both grasses produce a very similar grain, and so they would harvest barley for about three to four weeks, and right as they're getting done, the wheat is ready, and they'd be right back out in the fields. So for about seven to eight weeks, it was nothing but constant harvesting of first barley and then wheat. So this not only, though, lets us know kind of the time of year, but by saying that it was the barley harvest, he's now, the author is now saying things have changed from what we saw back in verse 1 of chapter 1. Remember, the whole reason that Elimelech moved his family from Bethlehem was because there was a famine. He did not trust God enough to provide for them in Israel. And so he moves to Moab where he thinks there's some food. And I pointed out how that was a bit ironic because they were from the town of Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem, the one where King David was born, where Jesus was born, the one you sing about at Christmas. Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet the house of bread was empty. So they moved to Moab. Well, after her husband and her sons die, Naomi hears that the, the, the house of bread is full again. And and the author, by putting this last phrase, it was the beginning of barley harvest, is indicating crops are growing again, the famine is over, food has returned to the house. So this phrase, it's kind of like if if this were a theatrical play, that the stagehands have just rushed up on stage, they're removing the backdrop of Moab, and they're setting up all these stalks of barley. And so as we move into chapter two, you've got to keep in mind that our stage, our scene, as we're moving into scene two, is now a barley field outside of Bethlehem. Also, as our story gets going, we now get to meet our third main character of the story, a man by the name of Boaz, and he makes his entrance in verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, We are now meeting Boaz. However, Boaz doesn't get to walk center stage and take the spotlight in the play until verse 4. So as the stagehands have gotten the the barley stage set up, Elimelech, I mean, sorry, uh, Boaz walks in, but he's just standing there on the side. All right, so as we get ready to move into the story, what you got to do is keep the scene of the barley harvest, but now you got this other dude standing there, and he's going to make his entrance. So pick it up in verse 2. And Ruth... The Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, oh, she's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, oh, please let me glean and gather from among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Well, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Back in the uh, Mosaic law, the uh, Israelites were commanded to not harvest everything out of their fields. This comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. You don't need to turn there. We'll be back in Ruth in just a moment. But uh, through Moses, God tells the people, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. By commanding this, God is wanting to develop within the Jewish people this kind, caring, generous heart. I mean, after all, their story as Jews were that they were slaves in Egypt. So they know what it means to be the foreigner. They know what it means to be poor. And so because of their own experience, God is wanting them to show this kindness, generosity to others around. So don't harvest everything. Leave a little bit for the poor. But also notice this wasn't just a welfare program where you just had free handouts. The poor had to come and work for it. By doing so, it would give them a little bit of dignity. Also, it might give them a little bit of job experience. Perhaps they would do such a good job that a wealthy landowner like Boaz might see it and hire them. And so God was doing what he could to use the people to care for the poor, to care for the foreigner, because that's God's heart. Now, I have no idea if they had this sort of um, like rule, law, practice in Moab, but I kind of doubt it. 
Based on what we learn about Moab in the book of Judges, which is when this story is taking place, that 300-year period that covers the book of Judges, we see that Moab, they're just bullies. All right, so I, I highly doubt they're going to leave a little bit of the, the harvest available for you know, the poor. So here's what I suspect happened. After Ruth says her amazing poetical words, the two of them have bonded together. They're making their way. They have to travel 100 miles from Moab, cross the Jordan River to come back into Judah and get down to Bethlehem. This would have taken them well over a week. So I would imagine on the way, they're trying to put together a plan. How are we going to live? We're just a couple of widows. We're going to first have to find a place to, to live, to sleep, to have some sort of shelter. But then we're going to need food. Well, again, Naomi, as a Jew, has grown up there. And so she knows Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. She, she's saying, oh, hey, here's what we can do to at least get a little bit of food. And so once they arrive, Ruth's like, all right, hey, I'm going to head out. Now, I don't know why Naomi doesn't go with her. I mean, Naomi is not that old. She's probably in her 40s, maybe her 50s. But she had the strength to make a week's journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. So we're not talking about some frail old woman here. Maybe she is really tired from their journey. Maybe she does feel like this isn't appropriate work for her at her age. Maybe she's just so busy scrolling on her phone she forgets about food. I don't know. But here's what I suspect. I think she is so depressed. She's at rock bottom. She does not want to go and face anyone. Remember back in chapter 1. She's like, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. Because that's how I feel. Have you ever been there? You don't want to see anyone. So I think she's just staying at whatever home they find. And he's just going to let Ruth go on by herself. Even though if she had gone, that would be more that they could harvest and, and glean. But she still just can't face anyone. But by her not going it helps set up a very important conversation and what's going to move our story forward. And that is the interaction between Ruth and Boaz. Now, we met Boaz in verse 1. We learned he's from the clan of Elimelech, which is Naomi's deceased husband. So you and I know who Boaz is. Ruth, though, as she heads out, she does not know who Boaz is. And she does not know that she's ended up in his field. And so she's a little taken aback by this incredible generosity that he shows her. We're going to see how generous he is with her in just a moment. But what happens is she ends up with a ton of grain, goes home, shows it all to Naomi, and Naomi's eyes just bulge like, whoa, who gave you all of that? And Ruth's response is, oh, well, it was some guy by the name of Boaz. I want you to see Naomi's response. Look there in chapter 2, down at verse 20. Ruth 2, verse 20. So after hearing Boaz's name, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. All right, the, Boaz showed such generosity. She's saying, may he be blessed, who's, uh, blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. That word right there, redeemer, is very key and critical in the entire story. Jake is going to preach a lot more on it next week. It plays a lot into what we're going to see in chapter 3. And then in two weeks, Ed's going to preach out of chapter 4. And we're going to see yet again how this role as a redeemer uh, fits. But for us to understand what's just taking place, we're going to have to talk about redeemer just a little bit. 
Some translations use the phrase kinsman redeemer. It was someone within the, the, the clan, the family, the extended family, who because of, of their proximity to the people in relation, had this role of being a redeemer. Think of it like as a, a protector, a guardian, or, or maybe even better, a, a rescuer. So, so let me give you an example of one of the things that a redeemer might do. Say a, a man owes a great debt. He, he can't pay this debt off. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up selling himself into slavery. Now, he wasn't kidnapped and stolen. Basically, he's given this lump sum. It's basically like, all right, you're going to work for me for seven years? All right, here's what I'd pay you. So here's the lump sum ahead of time. Now you're going to work the rest of the time without pay, and you're going to have to do anything and everything I say. But he could use that to then pay off the debt and to help provide for his family. However, God routinely would say, if at all possible, get yourself out of slavery. And so a redeemer would do anything and everything he possibly could to go and purchase that man back out of slavery to restore back to him his land so he could continue to move the family name forward. That was the role of the Redeemer. He was a rescuer, a guardian. Well, Boaz knows who Naomi is. Naomi knows who Boaz is, but Ruth doesn't. And yet when he hears who Ruth is, he already has heard the story. And so he's fulfilling his role as the redeemer. He's rescuing them from their poverty. And that is why we see him show so much generosity. In fact, I want you to see just how generous this man is. Look there in chapter two, go to verse eight, where they begin their interaction. The first thing is we see that he's incredibly generous with his kindness. First, he says, now listen, my daughter this is a foreign woman. This is not his daughter. And yet he uses this familial language to basically say, hey, I'm going to be like a dad to you. Like a good dad cares for his kids and is incredibly kind. I'm going to do this for you. And so because I see you like a daughter, here's what I'm going to do for you. The first thing he says is don't glean in another field. Instead, stay at mine and stay close to the young women. Typically, your poor, your foreigners would kind of trail way behind. Maybe it's because they felt that was their status in life. Maybe they were just too embarrassed. But, but the idea was that the main workers would be up front and these guys would be way back behind. He's basically saying, no, 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 don't stay back there. You, you come on up. It, it's almost like he's hired her. Like, come and work with my servants. Like, work with the other young women. A and the thing is, though, when you glean and harvest... You don't have to worry about giving me any of it. You get to keep all of it for yourself. Then notice he gives her uh, a provision. Um, says, uh, no, cha uh, cha uh, sorry, verse nine, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. In other words, don't just stick to the edges that we're leaving behind for the poor. Whatever you see, that's for you. So come on, stick with the women. Go anywhere you need to. Harvest as much as you possibly can. Then he gives her, uh, this is where provision down in verse nine. Uh, he, first physical protection. He says, have I not told the men, young men not to touch you? All right, so hey, yes, I realize you're a single foreign woman. Some guys might want to hit on you. Some may say some crude things. I'm telling them not to touch you, to let you be. You just stick with the young women and no one's going to bother you. He, so he gives her physical protection. Then he also gives her physical provision. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink. In other words, Anything you need, I will provide because I'm your redeemer. 
We stopped at verse 13, but if we'd gone on, we'd see in verse 14, he invites her to, to a meal. They've kind of spent the whole day working the, the fields. They stop for a meal before they glean, uh, take the grain off of the stalks, off the grass. And she has this meal with them. And, and not only that, but he lets her dip her bread into wine. He, he's just showing incredible, it, like, inclusion. Like, you're part of the family now. It doesn't matter that you're a Moabite. I know what you've done for Naomi. So you're part of the family. You're with us. But then, probably most generous of all, all the way down in verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she has gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, if you're like me, you're going, what is an ephah? Well, there's a little note in mine. You look down, and it says an ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel. Another source said two-thirds. But if you're like me, you're going, okay, how much is a bushel? All right, all of you with farm connections are going, oh, poor Aaron. Uh, all right, you know what a bushel is. All right, how, how much is the bushel? 22 liters. 22 liters. All right, how much is the liter? You don't know, me either. <laughs> so we have to put it into, uh, thanks for that, Caleb. Nice math. All right, we have to put it into, I had to put it into like English components. It would have been about 30 to 50 pounds. And that would just be the grain. Right? Not the bucket that she would have had to carry it in. I have no idea if she had a, a big bag. But this is a strong woman hauling 30 to 50 pounds of grain back. But you probably still are going, okay, that sounds like a lot, but exactly, like, what, how, how long would that last? That would have been about what a male employee would have been paid for a month's wages. That was a month's worth of grain. He did not just make sure they had enough to get them through the week. He just made sure they could get through the next month, if not more. This is incredible generosity. He's opened everything up to them. So now we got to ask ourselves, all right, so where does that kind of generous heart come from? I realize it's Sunday. We're in church. So someone wants to go, Jesus? The answer is actually right here in our text. The, the problem is our American eyes miss it. And so I want to have the fun today of helping you discover it for yourself. But for you to see it, we have to talk about chiasms. All right, now, if you don't know what a chiasm is, a chiastic structure, it, it's a literary structure often used in poetry. You see it in some of the Psalms. But basically, it's like this. You've got your first line, and it's going to match. It's going to be parallel to the very last line. And then you work in, and those lines match. And you could keep working in until you eventually get to the center. What the author is doing is trying to draw your attention. It's like an arrow coming to the center. And that's what he's wanting you to get. That's the most important, crucial part. All right, so it's kind of like you're, you're climbing the mountain. You get up there. You get the view. Isn't this gorgeous and beautiful? And then you're going back down. There are actually two chiasms, maybe more, but at least two here in uh, Ruth chapter 2. The first one I don't expect you to have seen because it's actually the entire chapter, and we have not read the entire chapter. But here's basically the overview of chapter 2. Starting in verses uh, 2, go ahead and next slide. There we go. Okay. Verses 2 and 3, we have Ruth and Naomi. Then we suddenly skip to Boaz. We see him interact with the reapers. 
Then in 8 through 14, we have Boaz and Ruth have their conversation, which we heard. Then in 15 through 16, Boaz is back talking to the reapers, basically saying, hey, let her have whatever she wants. And then we're back home. Ruth is made up with the grain. 17 through 22, we have the, the closing conversation with Ruth and Naomi. So what's our centerpiece? The conversation between both Boaz and Ruth. This is foreshadowing to what is to come. Next week, Jake is going to show us where this relationship goes. It goes from just, hey, I'll be like a dad and help take care of you. It's going to go even deeper, right? So you got to come back next week and, and hear that. But he's wanting us to see this is the centerpiece of the story, not just of the chapter, but this is where it's going for the rest of the, the story. But that still doesn't fully explain. I mean, maybe we could read into it that, that you know, well, maybe, you know, Boaz is unmarried. He thinks Ruth's kind of cute. Maybe that's it. It's just, this is like him giving jewelry, taking her to a nice restaurant, you know, trying to woo her heart. But that's reading into it. There's something else that exposes what's really going on behind the scenes, and it's in the second chiasm, and it's at the very, very beginning. Do you remember how in verse one, Boaz walked onto the scene, and yet he just had to awkwardly stand there? Because like, Introduced Boaz to us, and then suddenly we're talking about Ruth and Naomi and what's happening back at home. It, it felt a little bit like a, a young kid trying to write a story. Okay, well, so, so there's this guy, uh, Elimelech. Well, he died, but he's got this relative, Boaz. Oh, but then uh, there's this woman, Ruth. She's, like, connected to Naomi. Naomi's husband's the one who died. Anyway, they have this conversation, so she heads out. It, it, like, it just feels clunky. It's, it's not smooth. This is not how our modern authors would read this. So when we read this, we're going... Okay, it's kind of a little clunky. It's just not smooth. But the original readers would have been going, wow, that's impressive. Because they would see immediately what the author is doing. They would notice the chiasm. The chiasm starts off there. Go ahead and put up the slide. The chiasm starts there. No, next one. With saying a relative of Elimelech. Right? Doesn't even mention Boaz first. Just says, so there's Naomi. She was married to Elimelech. And there's a relative of Elimelech, a guy by the name of Boaz. The next part. So we get Boaz mentioned. Then we jump to Ruth. She's having this conversation with Naomi saying, I'm going to go out to the fields. So Naomi's like, all right, so you go to the fields. And then you get to the center. And the center is right there in verse uh, 2. She says, let me go to the field to glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. What's our centerpiece? She wants to find favor. Now, we as the readers, we see what happens later. And so on the surface, we're going, yeah, she found favor. She found favor with Boaz. You know, there he was, taking her to a nice restaurant, giving her jewelry, Trying to woo her heart. He's really impressed with her. No, the author's saying, no, 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 no. There, there's something else going on here. She finds favor because of what happens in the next phrase. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happened to come to Boaz's field. What the author is wanting us to see is that this is not an accident. 
This is the providential hand of God moving her to the exact place she needs to be so God can work. In other words, this is not just Boaz being generous. This is God being generous. It's not just Boaz saying, hey, go anywhere in the field. It's God saying, all of this is yours. This isn't just Boaz saying, hey, if you need a a, a drink of water, just ask. This is God saying, I will provide everything you need. This is not just Boaz saying, hey, I'm the kinsman redeemer, so I'll be generous. This is God saying, I am ultimately your redeemer, and I will provide. I will give you my generous love. But now maybe you want to push back. Those of you who take the Bible really seriously, you're you're sitting there going, "Um, Aaron, I I think you're reading that into it because I don't see that. Okay, so maybe you don't believe me. At least believe Naomi. Because remember, back in verse 20, Ruth has come back. She's got all this grain. She's got an ephah, a month's worth. Ruth's eyes just, I mean, uh, Naomi's eyes just bug out. Who in the world gave this to you? And Ruth's like, well, it was this guy named Boaz. And I want you to hear what this cynical, bitter, rock-bottom woman says. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. And notice how she describes the Lord. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi felt dead. She felt life was over. All she could see was the dark. All she could feel was the pain. She'd become Mara. And now suddenly she realizes that my God, who I thought dealt bitterly with me, is not dealing bitterly. He's actually caring. That my rock bottom is now suddenly the fertile ground for something new. And in that moment, she has hope. She realizes she's been wrong. Everything beforehand was telling her, God hates you, God doesn't love you, God is powerless. And suddenly she's seen, no, God is with me. He does love me, and he loves me generously. So often when we hit our rock bottom, we think that we've lost the favor of God. Too often we allow ourselves to determine reality based upon our circumstances and what is happening And yet so often, God is working even deeper than we can ever see or hope or imagine. That is why we have to lift our eyes up, get it off of the circumstances, and put them back on him. That is why the author, well, it's actually King David, in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, he says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When you hit rock bottom, you feel like your heart is broken. When you hit the bottom, you feel like your spirit has been crushed. When you crash down, you feel like your inner man has just splintered. And it is there in your deepest pain that the Lord is near. Sometimes we forget God knows pain. Jesus knew it physically through the cross The father knew it emotionally when he watched his son being brutally killed. He knows our pain from firsthand experience. 
That is why the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. If you're at rock bottom right now, you need to know God has not forgotten about you. He is not heartless. He's not ignoring you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And if you will seek him and trust him, you will have the joy of seeing him work. Now, yeah, God may not be working nearly as fast as you want him to. He might not be working exactly in the way that you want him to. But maybe, just maybe, him being God, having perfect knowledge, knows exactly what he's doing, and he will be able to produce something far better and greater than you could if he did it your way. But will you trust him? It does not mean that the pain isn't real. It does not mean that you just, you know, like give up or God doesn't care. It means you hold on. I have no idea how long you're going to have to hold. All I know is God is with you. He loves you. He is for you. So if you're in your well, look up. See the light. And when I say look up, what I really mean is look to the cross. Look to the empty grave. Jesus dying on the cross means God knows your pain and he has generously lavished his love upon you to rescue you and redeem you from the clutches of sin. Our world wants you to give in to all of these things, saying this is where your happiness will be found. But so often all it does is it digs us deeper. It's the, the illustration I so often use is it's like drinking salt water. The world's like, here, this is wet. Drink this. It's so good. And so we just keep down in it. But all it's doing is it's making us more parched and we're dehydrating ourselves. We're killing ourselves. And Jesus says, I am living water. Come and drink of my water. I will give you life and I will give it abundantly. And so come, come to him. Lift your eyes and put them on the cross and let the gospel be a balm upon your soul and to give you hope. But even if everything's going great right now, Keep your eyes on Jesus because you realize in your past not everything was perfect and you know that someday in the future something will come along to try and ruin, steal, kill, destroy your joy and happiness. But when you keep your eyes on him, he's the one who will bring this hope, who will renew it. Don't let your circumstances lie to you in thinking that this means God doesn't love you. It's just the opposite. This is exactly the environment where God's love is going to shine brightest. So what I want to do next is, uh, as we just contemplate this, some of you, you need to go to prayer. So I'm just going to ask Anthony or Salem, whoever has the lights, to just go ahead and dim those. I'm going to invite the band to come up on stage. Some of you, you just need a moment here to pray. You just need some time to, to deal with God because you're at your rock bottom. And some of you, you need a moment to just kind of say, God, I'm sorry, I've, I've given up on you. But then you need to take a moment to say, thank you for not giving up on me. Some of you, you, you feel like you're plunged in that direction. You're not there yet. And yet you just don't understand why these things keep happening, why you keep making the decisions you do. And you just need some time to talk to God. Some of you, you're doing fantastic. You just need to take a moment and thank God 
for how you've seen him work. In fact, I would encourage you to specifically name things for which you are thankful and just spend this next moment just worshiping him. After we spend this moment in prayer, the band's gonna begin to play a song. As they're leading the song, feel free to, to worship however you need to. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you realize this whole story of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection out of the tomb is true and it was done for you. This isn't just some story from history. It isn't just something that churches talk about. Like this was actually for you. It's part of God's generous love. Then during the song, give your life to him. During this time of prayer, just confess your sin. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I realize now what you've done for me and I want to let you now work in me and through me. Some of you though, you need to come to the communion table. As you come to that communion table, as you remember Jesus' body, which was broken for you, which we remember in that little wafer, when you open it up and you drink of that juice, you remember his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. That is the sign of God's generous love, which was poured out for you. God held nothing back, and now he holds nothing back from you. He invites you to come. The fields are wide open. You need a drink? Come. You need some sustenance? Come. You just need him? Come. So at any time during this song, I invite you to come to the communion tables. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet and you're not ready to put your faith in him yet, I'm just going to ask that you just very respectfully not go to these communion tables. No one here at Riverwood is going to judge you for staying in your seat we realize that this com these communion elements is basically saying that Jesus died on a cross for your sin. And so that story is part of your story. But if that story is who you are, that's part of your identity, then I invite you to come, even if this is your first time at Riverwood. Because this is not about us. This is about him and what he wants to do in you. And I want to give you every opportunity to worship the one who so generously showed his love for you. So Heavenly Father, as we uh, prepare to worship through song, through these communion elements. Right now, we just pause before your throne of grace. We come here with confidence, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who you are and what you've done through Jesus. And we, as we approach this throne, God, we just confess right now the ways we have sinned, the ways we have fallen short, the anger maybe we've had, the, the questions we've been throwing your way that, 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 that have been uttered in bitterness like Naomi. But God, as we bring these things to you, I pray you would not only to hear them, but you'd respond. God, we've already heard of your love through Ruth too. Help us to know it right now. So God, I pray right now you'd hear the prayers of your people.